Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Let's bring in a fearsome twosome right now. Yes. We have Saleha Mosin, U.S. Treasury reporter, on the phone from Washington, D.C. with us. And in studio, Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent. And if you hadn't guessed, of course, we want to talk about the, the little uh, back and forth, let's call it, between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. So, Saleha, let's get the skinny from you first. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin asked for funds back, unused funds. Was it really necessary to ask for them back? Wouldn't they have just sort of reverted at some point? I mean, that's an absolutely fair point to make. Uh, The secretary said that he was merely following the law, uh, that the CARES Act, as it was written, he was in the room when it was being cobbled together, that it did say that that those funds need to be returned to Congress. Um, You could make a case to say that he should not have said anything and just let that money revert back. But at the same time, I've heard from some um, experts that the Treasury Department seeks not to make any market-sensitive announcements in December or too late in the year or any kind of big moves because of the lack of liquidity in markets. And so I think they would also fear that not saying anything or letting this sort of surface on its own late in December would have shaken up markets more than it needed to. Mike, what do you what's just summarize for us the response from the Fed and what you think the Fed will do going forward? Well, the Fed basically said we don't want to give up the money. We don't want to end these programs. And what was unusual is not that they feel that way, but that they so expressly said it so quickly after Secretary Mnuchin released his uh, letter to them. Uh, the Fed is obviously a government bureaucracy on the one hand, and uh, loath to give up powers, but also their feeling is is the Secretary got it backwards that. Uh, the secretary was saying, we don't need these anymore because we brought down spreads because the loans have kept the markets open. And the Fed is saying, yes, but it's the fact that they exist that's keeping the markets open. And so you have run a risk if uh, something goes wrong that uh, the markets seize up again. The capacity for intervention and the confidence as well that that engenders. Michael, um What will the Federal Reserve do? I mean, um, is this a political motivation on the part of Treasury Secretary Mnuchin? I mean, he won't be Treasury Secretary next year. There's a lot of speculation about what the point of it was, and there doesn't seem to have been a real strong point to do it yesterday, uh, whether he's Uh, carrying out the president's wish to sandbag the Biden administration or not, we don't know. The Fed will probably go along. Uh, They do have the ability to tap the exchange stabilization fund. All this money that Congress appropriated went into the ESF, and they've pulled the money out of there, and if the money is repurposed, then um, there'll still be about $74 billion that they could use, which is more than they've spent. I mean, they only spent about $25 billion, so they probably have enough money to deal with things. What they wouldn't be able to do is start up a whole new round of programs should the economy go pear-shaped in the first quarter or something like that. The other question is, 
what would Treasury do with the money? And remember, we're not talking about the $454 billion because they've spent about $196 billion of it. So we're maybe talking $260 billion or so that would go back. Congress has to officially appropriate that. And so the other suspicion is that what Mnuchin was doing was trying to jumpstart negotiations with the congressional Democrats by saying, you know, we can all agree, here's a pot of money that's not being used. Let's just oh. get it out to somebody. <laughs> so, Celia, based upon your exclusive interview with Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, do you think that he and the Treasury are prepared to move forward on this and act on this? Or was this more posturing, do you think? I don't think this was posturing. He was very clear in the letter and in the press release and his comments to me that he is following the law. He is doing what was expected to be done. He pointed out that when the half trillion dollars uh, was put into the EFF, Democrats were saying that this is Stephen Mnuchin's slush fund, and now they're criticizing him for returning that money as the law says. The other point to be made is that, as um, Mike points out, is that the ESF has another roughly $75 billion that it has nothing to do with Congress, and that money can be very quickly activated by the Treasury and Fed Department if the markets do need it. Um, but the other thing is, you know, he, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has never fully understood how to work with Congress. So I have to at least put it out there and wonder if he had made this announcement but also had been able to say that he has already spoken to Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, maybe even Nancy Pelosi, that I've got this money and we are going to try to put this into the economy since we couldn't get anything else in, maybe it would have had a different uh, reaction to it. Right. And also just the very fact that if the Fed didn't know this was coming, it's so unusual. I mean, wouldn't you have thought that there would be a heads up given that there was going to be some kind of announcement that might impact markets, Mike? Well, I think the Fed knew it was coming because they reacted so quickly and they don't put out statements that fast unless they already knew what was okay. going to happen. So I presume the, the Treasury Secretary and the Fed Chairman had spoken about this and uh, Mnuchin had given Powell the bad news. And so the Fed was prepared. Um, certainly to get in the Treasury's face like that, they would have had to have a discussion about whether this is a good idea and why do we want to do it and, and uh, stuff like that. Celia, do we have any sense of timing how this may roll out? I don't recall this happening in the past. I'm just not sure uh, how this is gonna, going to go in terms of timing. Well, I mean, the, the program by law, they sent that on December 31st. So sometime by then, you know, uh, that money has to be returned to Congress and taken out of Treasury's, not only the Exchange Stabilization Fund, but it cannot just rest in Treasury's general service account. It has to be given back to Congress, so I, I'm assuming sometime by the end of the year. And we should really ask why so little of it was used, Michael. I mean, yes, there's other benefits to having money in a pot lying there, but actual use of it, why, why did not more get used? Well, there's two aspects to what they were doing. One was opening the markets, and by cutting rates to zero and opening the primary and secondary credit facilities, just that act alone reassured markets that there was a lender of last resort at work, and so spreads came down without them spending a lot of money. They did buy in the secondary market, but they never bought in the primary market. And then the other was the lending programs, particularly Main Street and the municipal facilities, and they the the main street facility took so long to set up that uh, it, it didn't have a lot of utility in part because uh, the companies that could get loans got loans and those who couldn't uh, banks didn't want to make loans to anyway because they felt they couldn't handle the debt the municipal facility has a penalty rate on it and a fee and so the when the fed acted 
spreads came down in the muni market and it was cheaper just to directly borrow than to go through the fed so that's why they didn't use a lot of the money mm. but again the fed argues if we hadn't had the money in the first place yeah. then the spreads etc wouldn't have come down <laughs> fascinating Celia Mosin thank you so much for joining us Celia Mosin US Treasury reporter fascinating story she has uh, for Bloomberg News and of course Michael McKee uh, international economics and policy correspondent joining us as well for this fascinating story that was certainly the news of the morning hasn't really moved markets all that much well, remember back in the early days of the pandemic, we were talking V-shaped or U-shaped or maybe an L-shaped. Then K-shaped came into the uh, discussion as well. Well, here we are eight months, nine months into this. Let's see where we are with the economy and the uh, rebound. We can do that with Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us here. As we stand here you know, in late November, uh, eight months into this pandemic, we've seen what the Fed can do. We've seen the stimulus. What's your outlook for the next six to 12 months here as we try to gauge the, the shape of our rebound here? Well, I, I do think it's important to note that the U.S. economy rebounded at a record pace in the third quarter, more than offsetting the decline that we saw in the second quarter, at least from percentage terms. But going forward, it does appear that the U.S. economy is already beginning to lose momentum, particularly on the consumer front. Retail sales up just a couple of tenths of a percentage point, the latest report, coming in about half of expectations and also representing a multi-month low. So we do have some concerns about this waning momentum, not to mention the rising risk of a second round resurgence of the virus and subsequent policies put in place then to help stem the spread of the virus, uh, continuing to support elevated joblessness, business closures, really undermining uh, or potentially undermining the improvements that we have seen in the third quarter. So we do expect growth to slow markedly going into the end of the year and as we turn the corner into the new year, potentially, depending on the depth and duration of this second round resurgence, resurgence, we could see growth fall back into negative territory, sparking a second round recession. So right now, the risks to the economy are certainly to the downside. Yeah, I mean, that would be very, very, very difficult to pull ourselves out of, Lindsay. At, at, at that point, would it be just necessary for Congress to, you know, I mean, would we be even talking you know, helicopter money at that point? Well, I, I don't know if necessarily we need helicopter money, but, but we certainly do need some sort of artificial support. Remember, this isn't a market crisis. This is a health crisis. And we're talking about millions of individuals losing their jobs, losing their businesses, income, revenue, opportunities, through no fault of their own, but rather through the government's direct design. And so right now, this is not a, a normal scenario by any means. We do, in fact, need some continued artificial support. That being said, we want to make sure that any additional aid or relief that comes down the pipeline is used smartly and reaches those individuals or small businesses that it is intended for. So what is in your base case, Lindsay, as you think about the remainder of this year and more importantly going into next year? Is there some fiscal stimulus? If so, what kind of size and, and what kind of timing are you thinking about? 
So we are factoring in a fifth round stimulus package, but we're looking for something more muted around $1 trillion. And it's amazing that we're talking about a muted level of expenditures around $1 trillion. Mm. But I I mean that in compared to the initial proposal from Democrats looking for $2 plus trillion. And of course, relative to what GOP senators were looking for, less than a trillion, much more, uh, much, uh, much smaller, much more targeted package. So we do think it will be somewhere uh, struck in the middle around that trillion dollar mark. The timeline for that is like to be in the first quarter. Right now, it does seem that officials on both sides, both Republicans and Democrats, are, are more concerned about really uh, marking a political victory, or at least not acquiescing to the demands of the other side, so really playing politics as opposed to getting down into negotiations, uh, trying to reach some sort of middle ground in order to get this much-needed aid out to individuals and businesses. Is that what's going on with the Treasury Secretary as well, that it's more politics that he's asking the Fed to return unused funds? Well, I don't know necessarily if it's politics or if it's a different way of viewing these programs. Remember, they were always intended to be temporary, and he's not terminating them early. He's simply saying that he'll allow them to run out at their scheduled time at the end of the year. That being said, he could certainly reinitiate those or reignite those at the start of the year or leave it to the Biden administration uh, once they are presumably sworn in in late January to reignite those lending programs. In the meantime, the Fed is not being left without additional tools. The Federal Reserve certainly could implement additional forward guidance, yield curve targeting, ramp up asset purchases. So they still have a number of tools in their tool belts. But to the Fed's point, we have heard from a number of officials that they would rather have all of the possibilities still on the table, given that the economy is in such a fragile position and given that we are facing a second round resurgence and potential second round lockdown as we look out to the end of the year. Hey, Lindsay, just real quickly, 20 seconds. What's your view of the labor market, given that we may be going into some more lockdowns? I think the labor market is increasingly fragile. We have seen massive job layoffs. And while we have recaptured about half of the jobs lost at the start of the year, if we see more and more business closes, uh, closures, that will result in further layoffs, temporary layoffs, uh, you name it, further wage losses, which will only compound the difficulties that we've seen in the consumer sector. And Lindsay, just uh, one last thing, your run rate for GDP through the end of the year and into the next year? I think the U.S. GDP is going to struggle to maintain a sustainable level nearer that 2% that we saw heading into 2020 with very low uh, single-digit growth, if not uh, falling back into negative territory, if in fact we do see a second-round lockdown, even a second-down light lockdown scenario. Lindsay, thank you so much for that. Um, Lindsay Piegza is Managing Director and Chief Economist at Stiefel Nicholas there with, I guess, some good news and some bad news. I mean, it really is a kind of a a mixture. It's a a tough situation to have to read, and I don't envy the job of those who have to put all this into models. Well, one financial term that has come into my vocabulary, at least during this pandemic, has been corporate zombie. And apparently corporate zombie is a company that is not even earning enough to cover their interest expense. And there's some notable names that are, quote unquote, corporate zombies, Boeing, Carnival, Delta Airlines, even ExxonMobil. Let's get a little bit smarter about this issue. And we can do that with Brian Chapata, debt markets columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for joining us here corporate zombies. So this is really a thing? It is. Um, there's 1.4 trillion of debt. You, you sort of mentioned the criteria 
uh, that some of my Bloomberg News colleagues were looking at earlier this week, which is trailing 12-month operating income versus interest expenses. So the idea basically is that if you don't even make enough to cover your obligations, you're not really in a position to hire more people. You're not really in a position to invest in more opportunities to grow. So these are companies that are kind of hobbling along and getting by through uh, ultra-cheap borrowing costs. So there's a risk there that they'll uh, hamstring the economic recovery here out of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. What is the thinking of these companies that they'll just keep going as long as they can and that, you know, this is a, a good offer? Well, one of the things that, that, that we really tried to look at, me and my Bloomberg Opinion colleagues, was there's a, a variety of companies that are in here, right? So you talk about things like ExxonMobil, GE, Boeing. I mean, those are pretty big companies, right? And I mean, they're kind of value plays at, at heart. Uh, you also have growth companies at heart. You see companies like Beyond Meat, Spotify, Uber, even Moderna uh, are technically corporate zombies under this criteria. Um, but they have a reason for that, right? They're not necessarily focused on profitability right now. They're trying to grow. Um, so it's a bit of a mixed bag, but there are certainly some industries where you kind of look at it and you think that the, the outlook is, is pretty bleak. So, Brian, early in my career, I was a corporate finance banker where I made loans to media companies, and my job as a low man on the totem pole, the team was to build a spreadsheet and to make sure there was enough cash flow to support the interest uh, and even the debt service principal. And if the special little cell came up red, i.e. there wasn't enough cash flow to support huh. the interest, we didn't make the loan. How are these guys coming back to the market? Uh, what are creditors thinking? Well, I mean, the credit markets are wide open right now, so I think that there's not a lot of there's not a lot of concern. There's this feeling that, for certain companies, especially that uh, the federal government will step in if necessary, that they're too systematically important. Uh, thinking more of Boeing in that in that instance, but you also really have other companies like the the movie theater chains, for example. Uh, my Bloomberg opinion colleague Tara LaChapelle um, wrote about them and. They really made kind of a blunder in the past few years, kind of really you know, expanding these movie theater facilities, making all these acquisitions, taking on a lot of debt. And now there's a real question about their going concern uh, status in a way, because who wants to go back to a movie theater right now when especially there's all these streaming services that are competing? So there are certain industries that are really coming under pressure. But for now, I think there's a feeling that investors just are piling into corporate credit. Um, we'll see if that changes at all with the shutdown of the Fed's facility, but uh, it's been wide open for a long time. And of course, that's what all the serious debt guys are waiting for, right? There, are, Some of them are already invested in some of these co uh, companies that were finding it difficult to get loans, but others are waiting for them to be even in more trouble, at which point they'll help them through some kind of a, a bankruptcy process and we'll still see companies return, but they'll just be leaner and meaner, right? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you think about the distressed debt investors out there, Howard Marks and, and, and his ilk. I mean, they're all, they've raised a lot of money for distressed credit funds, and they're kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop here. So to the extent that some of these companies do come under even further pressure and may be locked out of the more traditional credit markets, I do think that there's a lot of money out there waiting for uh for liquidationist type yields, you know, 10% or higher, mm -hmm. uh, being, being able to turn things around and, and, and lock in a really nice profit there. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was an equity analyst, they say uh, all we had to do was just tell a nice rosy story about a year or two down the road, and that's all you needed to do to sell a stock. Whereas these credit analysts, uh, that's 
these are tough folks. They look at the numbers, and if the numbers aren't there, you know, they really put this. Wait a second, Paul, 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 yeah. Paul, Paul. Go back and tell, say that again. All you have to do is tell a rosy story. Sure, is that, is that what's happening investor. every day to us? Absolutely, absolutely. And as I always long as you can say, hey, it. you know, it's going to be a great two years down the road, buy this stock now. But in the interim for the credit folks, they got to make interest payments and principal payments and things like that. So is, are you getting a sense, Brian, that the standards within the credit markets are, are you know, getting dangerously lax? I mean, I think, I think that that's been kind of the assumption for a while um, with the Fed being kind of in the in the markets, there was this expectation that uh, things wouldn't quite get so bad. Um, you sort of look at share prices, to your point about equity, um, you take a look at share prices on some of these companies, and they've rebounded quite dramatically. And there will be some that survive. I mean, uh, my, uh, my Bloomberg opinion colleague, Sarah Halsack, wrote about Darden restaurants and Olive Garden, and there's a feeling that there will be a return to dining out once, uh, once people feel comfortable and there's a vaccine. That's not something that's going away anytime soon. But retailers, uh, Macy's and Gap, they might have a bit more struggle. And it's kind of just this question of whether COVID has exacerbated trends that had been happening for a long time. You talk about the retail apocalypse. That's been a thing for a long time in people's vocabulary uh, versus something that was more of just uh, a shock to the system. Thinking about restaurants and dining out, there is a huge trend towards doing more of that that suddenly reversed this year. Brian, just briefly, because we're, you know, only about a minute left, this returning money to the Treasury or returning unused funds to the Treasury, explain it to the layperson. Are there actual funds sitting somewhere that need to be, you know, carted off from one place <laughs> back to the Treasury? Kind of. Um, you could think about it that way. The, the idea that there's just funds that are earmarked that can't be re-earmarked, I mean, it's kind of just it's kind of a mess. But basically, the Fed has money that it had appropriated to it. The Treasury wants that money back so that Congress can reappropriate it to something else. Congress could also just raise more money and uh, appropriate it elsewhere and not touch the Fed's money. But uh, they're choosing not to for whatever reason. So I think we'll have to watch and see what happens. But uh, Steve Mnuchin seems to be doing some uh, political maneuvering, I think. And everyone's just kind of wondering... Uh, if the Fed will actually honor its request or if there's going to be any more pushback. Right. I mean, yeah, we'd love to have a longer conversation about this because it goes to all the uh, all the inner workings of the monetary system and, 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 and how Congress can, I guess, you know, help the Fed fulfill its mandate in, in some ways. Brian, thank you. That is Brian Chapata, and he is a Bloomberg Opinion debt columnist. Uh, read his story today, but also follow him all the time because uh, he knows what's up. Well, you know when Larry Ellison's little Hawaiian island, Lanai, is hit by coronavirus, that. that it is really serious. It had been yeah. coronavirus-free for the whole spring and summer, and now its 3,000 residents are plunged into the virus outbreak and uh, tourism halt. All that to say, we are not even coming out of the woods. We're still right in the centre of the woods. And let's talk to Lauren Sauer now, Johns Hopkins University, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine, to tell us more. Lauren, you know, is there any place in the United States where it's not exponentially rising now? Not from what I can see. You know, and we, we've had a total of over 250,000 deaths since the start of this pandemic. And um, that number just keeps growing, approaching almost 200, or, sorry, almost 2,000 yesterday. 
I think as we look at many of the maps that are trying to um, estimate risk across the country, they're all, you know, screaming red. They're all they're all showing risk. They're all showing widespread community transmission, and it's something that um, I think we really need all eyes on right now. Lauren, this feels worse than maybe I was expecting. As you talk to your colleagues in the medical community, does it feel worse than expected to them as well? I think it feels worse for a couple of reasons. I think the key reason is it feels worse because it kind of feels like no one's listening, right? Yeah. So we we have the experience from the summer and spring, and we feel we did feel like we've learned a lot of lessons. Um, and then, you know, you go out into the community and you see people not wearing masks. You hear on social media and on the news um, protests around masking and social distancing and other um, measures that are protective of the public's health. And um, just generally speaking, I think that the part of the reason it feels worse is because it feels like um, it was preventable. Yeah, um, or at least, you know, controllable in some way. Yeah. Lauren, it, there was some Bernstein research that was looking at the various states and how many people would have to be in a restaurant for there to be a 50% chance of you, you know, coming across one person with coronavirus. And I wondered how you look at statistics like that, because... There were complaints that, you know, that's not a true measure of how much coronavirus is out there, that you're you're talking there about only asymptomatic people that appear in a restaurant. Anyone who's symptomatic is likely to not be going indoor dining, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think restaurants are very risky right now. Um, and I think part of that is because we don't fully understand the picture of asymptomatic infection and um, partly because the environment just creates um, opportunities for exposure that may not be in other situations, right? So you have to take your mask off to eat and drink. Um, you have to be handed materials from another person, so that plate or that drink or um, your silverware. And so, and and then on top of it, as the weather gets colder, more people are moving inside. You're sitting closer together. Um, you know, having that mask off for long periods of time as people are moving about the restaurants, um, it, it is hard to take general numbers that, that are estimated across a community or across a region and apply them to the, um, to the experience that happens within a restaurant, that very unique environment. So, Lauren, I mean, Johns Hopkins is obviously one of the uh, finest medical centers and scientific centers in the world. If I were to go into the emergency room today of Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, what would I find in terms of how many patients, how crowded, how crazy is it there, the morale of the people in the emergency room? What would I find? Yeah, I think what you would find first and foremost is, um, is a lot of people. Um, you know, all those people who would have had emergencies if it weren't for the COVID pandemic are still having those emergencies, right? So they're still in our emergency department. They still, you know, they, they need critical care. Um, they need emergency uh, observation or treatment from our physicians and our nurses. Um, and so they're all still there. You would also see a lot of people with undifferentiated respiratory infections and, and respiratory symptoms. And they're in the process of being determined whether they have COVID or they have flu or they have some other respiratory infection. Um, you'd see a lot of people in our waiting room and you'd see a lot of, of exhausted physicians and nurses trying to move these patients through as safely and quickly as possible. Gosh. The volumes across the country are are high. They're they're higher than we want them to be, and they're higher than um, than they should be to create a safe environment to provide optimal care. 
Do we have enough PPE? I, I think PPE feels a little better. It's one of the pieces that we're le- less worried about than, um, than you know, healthcare workers, for example. I think as we move into flu season, there are risks of having those PPE gaps again. Uh, a lot of work was done to create PPE stockpiles in stores across the country. And so I, I feel a little more confident in the PPE supply chain. That being said, you know, it, there, there are going to be gaps and um, there's going to be dramatic need for PPE as we move through the winter. Lauren Sauer, thank you so much uh, once again for joining us. We always appreciate you taking the time. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. We should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies and this radio station. And Vani, I just, you know, your heart goes out to these healthcare workers. They've been working for so many months under such incredible stress. And here we go with, for many of them, uh, the third wave. Hopefully uh, they can do well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.